to verse 23. When they were released, okay, so you know a lot happened between them being arrested and now they are released. Let's look at what happens. They went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, I want you to hear their prayer. We're here for prayer services. I want you to see how they pray. <clears throat> Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. That's the scripture they quoted. You're familiar with that. That's Psalm 2. All right? They quoted back from the Old Testament and pointed it towards Jesus. Right? So this is the Holy Spirit speaking now because he's, he's written this as scripture. And so he is saying, this is what I had in mind when I wrote this in the Old Testament. And this is the clear application of it and how it applies to Jesus. <clears throat> they got it. The Holy Spirit was giving, him, giving it to them. Let me go on. Verse 27. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had pre predestined to take place. And now, Lord, so the first part of their prayer is like information, insight as to how Jesus is the fulfillment of God's promise in the Old Testament. And now here's the prayer, verse 29, excuse me, verse yeah, 29. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. Short prayer, right? But insightful. They didn't ask God to stop the challenge and the resistance they were given. They asked God for boldness. God would use their boldness for his glory. It says, look upon the, their threats. And grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. They're saying, Lord, help us to be bold and consistent in our testimony and then your, use your power to make your name known. Make your name known. Quick application. We live in a in a wicked culture, more and more stuff is happening. It's getting closer and closer to home. And it is about um, godliness and a lack of godliness in our culture. We need to pray that God continues to um, energize us to live godly lives as a testimony to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And we need to be encouraged by what God is able to do 
in the midst of the foolishness that we live in. I was at the restaurant this weekend, this past weekend, and uh, Don and I walked in the restaurant, and there was an argument right at the the, the uh, greeter's table. You know, when you come into, we were at Applebee's, so they had a little greeter's table there, and uh, the host was having, actually being cursed, cursed out by a customer on their way out. This particular customer happened to be what I assumed to be a mother because I saw several of her children going out with her. So whatever she did, she did in front of those children. It was a shame. The language, the vileness. Um, I stood between the two because I thought she was going to do something crazy. She wasn't going to listen to me either. She was going to just talk and do whatever she did, and finally she finally left. Um, for, for us to come across, you know, unfortunately, that's, that doesn't even surprise you, as I tell you. You've seen that kind of nonsense before. But we live amongst that kind of foolishness all the time. That could have easily escalated to something else, um, got super blown up. Um, but you probably encountered similar type things in your regular, everyday interactions. So God has planted us in this culture. How can we be testimonies? We don't know exactly how we'll respond or what we'll do or even how that'll be uh, received or not ourselves in a way that brings glory to God. Um, as the lady left, Donna said something to to the, uh, the workers because I, I think she was just being wrongly treated. And she said, don't just don't let that get to you. Don't let that bother you. Don't let that get to you. I was encouraged by that. Um, and I hope that she was as well. There's somebody there that was going to step in if it got too far. And somebody there that sees your side of it to encourage you in the right. Just, a, um, just in our prayer time tonight, ask God to help us to be testimonies wherever we go and to um, bring glory to him as we live our daily lives. Good evening, saints. We're going to be going through <clears throat> the book of Hebrews once again. It's been a little while. I got Deacon Nick behind me. I like being able to say that. I see Brother Deacon Charles out there. I love being able to We've been going through Hebrews, and it's been a little bit of a break. And we are talking about the fact that this book has three keys. And the keys, I'll say I'm in reverse importance. The least important key is that this book is about three ages. It is about the age of the past. It's about the age now when Christ has come and we have the Holy Spirit. And it's about the age to come when Christ will return. It's secondly and second importance about Christ teaches us a lot about Jesus and his role and how do we connect the Old and New Testament? How do we understand these things? How does Jesus connect all of that for us? But then of first importance, we need to put our faith in Jesus. We need to put our faith in the Word of God. And so we've been looking through this book and we got to chapter 7. 
We just got done with what I like to call the rebuke interlude, where he had to stop and rebuke them. And the reason he stopped and rebuked them, and I had a, such a hard time understanding that until these keys were given to me. And what you understand when you get to that interlude section is this. He had to break the book up. Why? Because the book is about believing in the son, and they weren't showing belief. That whole section is about, hey, if you grow, if you believe, you ought to be growing. Belief has an impact. You can't believe and stay the same. And so now we get into chapter 7, and I know some of it is going to be a little bit heady, but just stay with me. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him Abraham appointed a tenth part of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness. And then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He's without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. See how great this man was to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the spoils. And those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers, though these also are descended from Abraham. But this man who does not have his descent from them received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself, who received tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. Now, perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to rise after the order of Melchizedek, rather than one named after the order of Aaron? For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. For the one of whom these things are spoken belong to another tribe, from which no one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah. And in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of a Melchizedek, who becomes a priest not on a basis of legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. For it is witness of him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of his weakness and uselessness, for the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced, through which we draw near to God. And it was not without an oath. For those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. But this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by, from death by continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins, and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests. But the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever.
Let's talk about chapter 7. And he introduces this character, Melchizedek. Melchizedek, if you just look at just the name itself, it means king of righteousness. King of righteousness. And he's also called the king of Salem. And you know, Salem means peace. He was the king of peace just by his name. Melchizedek, king of righteousness, king of Salem, king of peace. And he's saying that the Bible writers used Melchizedek to describe just a picture of what Christ would be like. A king of righteousness, a king of peace. Melchizedek is greater than the law. Why is he greater than the law? Because he was established as a priest before there was a law. And those who from the law descended from actually were blessed by him. In other words, they expressed their inferiority to him. He could have went deeper. Because when you look at Abraham and he met Melchizedek, Melchizedek said, the most high God bless you. From that point on, Abraham started using that same term, the most high God. And by that, we learned that Abraham learned from Melchizedek. Melchizedek was just called the priest of the true God. He then starts to make this argument, and it could get, it may seem a little complex, but the idea is this. Nobody could be a priest unless they were a Levite. And not just a Levite, they had to be a Kohathite, which is one of the clans of Levi. And not just a Kohathite, they had to be a direct descendant of Aaron. They had to trace their line back to Aaron to be a priest. And so priesthood was something that descended. It wasn't something you were chosen. You just got it by virtue of birth. And we know, unfortunately, that there were a lot of corrupt priests. Aaron's sons, his first two oldest sons got killed by the Lord for offering a fire while they were drunk. Eli had some sons that were sleeping with women in the temple. They didn't really have a temple back then, but the tabernacle. You can almost make an argument that one of the biggest targets of the prophets was the priest. And in Jesus' day, who killed him? It was a priest. And so we can say this that we've seen through history a priesthood that was set up to uphold the law ended up corrupted. Even Aaron, as good as he was, set up the golden calf. And it said, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever. The priests couldn't serve forever because they kept dying. We all got that problem. We all face our mortality, but Jesus doesn't die. He later on talks about he is able to save us to the uttermost, those who draw near to God. You know, the high priest couldn't always go into the Holy of Holies. They had to go there at certain times. And they had a little bell on themselves so people could hear them moving. And if they stopped moving, they'd be like, oh, God got them. 
while he was in there. He must have thought something wicked or did something wicked in there that wasn't acceptable to the Lord, and God removed him. But Jesus always dwells in the Holy of Holies. He is perfectly the king of righteousness because he knew no sin. He's the king of peace because he establishes a relationship with God and brings the warring God with the sinful people together. And he does that by cleansing us and raising us. It says he has no need to offer sacrifices for his own sins because he didn't sin. And he doesn't need to keep offering sacrifices because the sacrifice he offered was so great that it met every price that needed to be met. You know, people always had this theological discussion that Jesus would go to hell. But when Jesus was on the cross, he had no need to go to hell because he said on the cross, it is finished. And he did all his work there. There was no need for him to go down and suffer anymore. He had suffered all he needed to suffer. And when he died, the veil was torn. And we say that, but I think we don't understand how deep a miracle that would be for that veil to be torn. That's not like, you know, me ripping this jacket because I just went like this too tight. This veil was several pieces of fabric, thick pieces sewn together sewn and sewn together so thick it will be like tearing a couple phone books and it just tore in half and right there God established my holy of holies is not to be kept in one place anymore my holy of holies is to be within the hearts of my people and so the word of oath which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. God establishes something. Now let's just talk about this section again in light of our keys. Do you see the three ages? Do you see that he's talking about Melchizedek and he's talking about the law and how the law has passed away? Do you see how in this new age he is established because of Christ something better than the law? But do you see that we even expect even greater things in the time to come? That we will be with our Lord and we will no longer have a sin nature. We will no longer face those battles. It's three ages. I know you can't miss Christ in this passage. That's the main focus of this passage. Who Christ is and what he does, what his role as a priest is. Unsaid in this passage, right? Unsaid in this passage. What will be highlighted later is the fact that the author is not saying all this for us to just read it and say, oh, interesting. We got to believe. And by believing, we ought to be changed by that belief. It ought to make a revolution happen in our hearts where we ought not stay the same that we are right now. So remember those three keys as you read through this book. Three ages, the Son of God, and having faith in that Son of God.